FAJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people, just like you, who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. My guest today has a very long and impressive bio, but rather than read it, I put it in the show notes because we have so many questions that were sent in. We want to get to them right away. But today is a very exciting day because her latest book, Let's Ask Marion, which is not only a great book, but I love that it's little and it's just adorable, was released today. And it's almost her birthday. So I think a great present for her would be for everybody to jump on Amazon and get this book because it came out today. And when you buy the books on the first day, it really helps the author a lot. Please welcome somebody who is really a superstar in the world of food politics, Marion Nessel. It is such an honor to meet you. And thank you so much for your work. Oh, thank you. Glad yeah. to be here. Yeah, so I you, I, you wouldn't know this, but I heard you speak in LA at the Healthy Lifestyle Expo, I think it was about 17 years ago. And it seems like not much has changed in this area other than maybe things getting worse. What do you think? Well, I think people are more interested every day. People are more and more interested in food, not only because of what it does for health, but because of what it does for the environment. And one of the great gratifying things to watch has been public interest in the kinds of things that I'm interested in just get bigger and bigger. How did you first become interested in food politics? Well, it was kind of handed to me. Uh, I mean, I have a story about it. I went to a meeting at the National Cancer Institute in the early 1990s, and it was a meeting mainly on cigarette smoking and the way that cigarettes cause cancer. And people gave the speakers there were international experts on what turned out to be cigarette marketing. And I remember one talk in particular uh, where the guy showed slide after slide after slide of cigarette marketing to children. And it was the era of Joe Camel. And I knew about Joe Camel. I knew that cigarettes were bad. I knew that cigarette companies marketed to children, but I had never paid any attention to it. I had seen all of these things, but I, and I'd seen them around, but they were just part of the landscape. They weren't something that you would necessarily pay any attention to. And I walked out of that meeting thinking, we should be doing this for Coca-Cola. Um, we should be paying attention to the way that companies are marketing, particularly the way they're marketing to children. So I started paying attention. And then I described what I, I started describing what I was seeing in various articles for journals. And then in 2002, I put those articles together into the book that became Food Politics, which came out in 2002. Great book, by the way. And you also have one on pets that we could do another whole show about. Why are they allowed to market the way they do to children? Saturday morning cartoons, all kinds of cute animals on the boxes, toys inside, things like that because Congress said that the Federal Trade Commission was not allowed to do anything to stop marketing to children. That came from Congress in the early 1990s, the, or actually in the early 1980s. In 1979, the, the head of the Federal Trade Commission, Mike Perchick, tried to stop television marketing to children and Congress intervened. He was fired over that. And they passed a law saying you can't do anything about stopping marketing to children. That's food industry lobbying in action. It was really effective. And even that, that of course, was before, it was 1979, 1980. That was before obesity was a problem. 
when obesity became a problem, uh, the federal government started writing reports about how important it was to stop marketing junk food to children. And there were sort of threats that if food companies didn't stop and pull back on it, that Congress would take action, but Congress never did. Wow. I just want you to know I've been posting your Amazon link and it says that you're the number one new release in food policy. Well, that's nice. Isn't that great? I hope there aren't. I wonder if there are any other books. <laughs> I don't any ones that were in, 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 uh, released today, but I'll check. You know, you had mentioned that the book came out a little bit early because you're actually using this as a textbook. So tell us about that and where you teach. Yeah, I teach at NYU. I'm actually retired, but they asked me to teach a class this fall um, on and I'm teaching it on food politics in the coronavirus era. Uh, it starts next week and I have, it's online. It's the first time I've ever taught an online course and the courageous students who signed up for it are, are all over the world. There is, I heard from a student in Hong Kong today, one in Singapore, one in Abu Dhabi. I mean, they're just everywhere. It's going to be a very interesting, steep learning curve for me. That's going to be great. Do, do you enjoy teaching? I love teaching, but what I love most about teaching is the interactions with students. And I just don't know how this is going to work. You know, you have an amazing blog and I'm going to post the link to it. But today of all days, being I'm somebody that happens to be vegan for 43 years, it just cracked me up. The fact that the plant-based fake meat companies are fighting with each other now. I know, I think it's hysterically funny, and that's why I put it there. Uh, one of the plant-based meat companies is accusing the others of having more ingredients and therefore being ultra-processed, but it looks pretty ultra-processed to me too. Ultra-processed is this new buzzword, um, sort of fancy word for junk foods. And it's foods that are industrially produced, don't look like the foods they came from, um, have ingredients that you don't have in your home kitchen, you can't make them in your home kitchen. Um, and there's so much evidence now that shows that eating ultra processed foods is bad for your health. Um, and re really fabulous evidence that's really well controlled. Um, so it's, it's a really new concept in nutrition that you just, if you're worried about your weight, don't eat ultra processed foods. It's not even just about weight. And I'm interested in that because I used to be obese and I, I run a summit every year called The Truth About Weight Loss. And this year I'm doing a different summit as well about GI health. And every single GI doctor I've interviewed said it's not just about weight, but ultra processed food isn't good for us. It's not good for the gut. It's not good for the microbiome. It's just not good for our health. Right. We need to be eating real foods to the extent that we can. If, if, if the coronavirus has done anything good, it's sending people home to cook. Yep. You know, 10 years, almost 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Unprocessed. And I was just talking to the publisher today and we're coming out with the 10th anniversary edition. Maybe we should change the name to Ultra Processed because it seems there are people like you and Jacqueline, whose wife I just interviewed on the show that knew a long time ago, we weren't really supposed to be eating these foods, if at all, at least not very much. Small amounts, everything in moderation. But when it comes to ultra processed foods, moderation means small. It's just that, you know, I find at least with the people I work with that some people just don't do moderation very well with foods that are hyper palatable, hedonic, high in sugar, fat and salt that for some people, they can't just have a little bit. Well, that's the whole point of these foods is an enormous effort goes into making them so you can't, you know, the famous you can't eat just one. That was no joke. 
um, they're designed that way. And there's an enormous testing procedure that makes sure that they're the kind of thing that people just can't get enough of. And so if you find yourself confronted with a bag of chips, a very large bag of chips, and you can't stop, um, somebody worked really hard to make you feel that way. Um, you know, my, my advice is if you feel that way about potato chips, buy really tiny bags. Yeah. Do you think they'll ever be culpable, the, the, the processed food industry? Well, you know, it's, it's it's almost unfair to attack them. And I, you know, I think it's very important for everybody to understand that food companies are not social service agencies. They're not public health agencies. They're businesses. They're corporations. Their primary job is to return profits to uh, shareholders. Um, and starting in 1980, which by no coincidence was when people started eating more and gaining weight. That was when the shareholder move, value movement started, which changed the way that Wall Street evaluated corporations. They were no longer given points for social value, for taking care of their workers, for producing benefits for societies. The only thing they were rewarded for was higher immediate returns for stockholders. And that has made things very, very difficult for corporate America in general. But for food companies, it was a disaster because we have so much food in this country, twice the amount that anybody needs. Um, and so it's a very competitive environment and they have to sell food in a competitive environment. Therefore, they sell food. That's what they do. Yeah. So, you know, to blame them for that makes no sense. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And isn't true that they don't sell healthy food because people don't buy healthy food. Um, because they have designed the unhealthy food to uh, attract people's taste preferences in ways that healthy food don't in the same manner. So if you're eating healthy food, you know, if you have a great big salad, you stop. You know, you have a certain amount of salad, you're full, you're done. You know, that's not true of hamburger, french fries, soft drinks. Um, or, or pastries or candy or any of those kinds of things. You're never done when you've got those because they are, have been designed to just taste the way you just wish everything tasted. And so you can't stop. Um, so is that fair? No. Is it legal? Of course it's legal. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. If we want to change that, we have to change the way Wall Street evaluates corporations. Big time. How do we do that? <laughs> well, we use the political, so we organize and use the political system the way that uh, uh, corporations use the political system, but it's far harder for us because we're not paid to do it. They have much more money than we do, uh, but still there are ways of organizing and um, you know, writing your congressional re representatives and getting your friends to complain and doing politics at the local level that I think could be really effective. Yeah. Do you think it's any coincidence that the tobacco companies often bought processed food companies? Uh, no, they knew what they were doing. They're very profitable. Uh, and of course, the processed food companies immediately picked up the marketing techniques. 
so that the marketing techniques that are used to sell you junk food, ultra processed junk food, are exactly the same marketing techniques that were used by the cigarette company to sell cigarettes, even when the cigarette companies knew that cigarettes caused cancer. Now, food is not cigarettes. It's much more complicated. Um, but the marketing issues are the same. The first thing you do is cast doubt on the science. So if there's any science that links ultra-processed foods to uh, poor health, um, you attack that. It turns out the big study that was done on at NIH last year, which showed that people who ate ultra-processed foods under tightly controlled conditions ate 500 calories more a day and gained weight. It's been pretty hard to attack that study because it was so well-controlled. Um, just, it's one of the most well-controlled studies I've ever seen. It was just absolutely brilliantly designed and it's been very, very hard to attack it. So, um, so you cast out on the science, you, you attack the scientists, you, um, you, know, you try to generate controversy where no controversy really exists and food companies do that too. And you fund your own research. And don't they often blame the person for not being able to control themselves? Oh yeah, it's, you blame it on personal responsibility. We're not forcing you to eat our products. We don't have a gun to your head. We're not making you eat that. It's not our fault if you overeat. It's not our fault if we put things in enormous packages and spend fortunes trying to make them taste in ways that people end up feeling addicted to. Um, I don't know. I mean, they're just selling food. That's all they're doing. I don't even think what they're selling is food, though, most of it. I mean, because I wouldn't eat it. Well, Michael Pollan calls it food, food-like objects. Absolutely. What, what do you think happened in the 80s that that's when we started really seeing a climate obesity? Well, three very um, complicated things. The first was that food became overproduced in this country. Uh, there used to be agricultural policies that kept um, agricultural producers from producing too much because they wanted to keep the price high enough and not do a supply and demand thing where the price got dropped. And, and so in the 1970s, Earl Butts, the famous Earl Butts, who was the Secretary of Agriculture, had this famous saying, you should be growing fence row to fence row planting. We, you know, we need to produce more food if we're gonna feed the developing world. Uh, I mean, that was actually not what was happening. Um, and so farmers produced more and they were subsidized. That's what subsidies do, is they encourage farmers to produce more food. Um, and so we got, we went from 3,200 calories a day available in the food supply per person to 4,000 calories a day available in the food supply per person, roughly twice what we need. And that made for very competitive food industry. And then the shareholder value movement came in, in 1981, which said, never mind blue chip stocks, slow, steady returns on investment, higher returns on investment right now. And so then they not only had to make a profit, but they had to grow their profits and report growth and profits every 90 days 
to Wall Street. And then the third thing that happened was President Reagan was elected with a deregulatory agenda and he deregulated and he deregulated marketing to children. That's when all that stuff happened about marketing to children. So all of a sudden, it not only became okay to market to children, but it was impossible to prevent companies from marketing directly to children. And that situation has lasted to the present. I think food companies have a really hard time. Jerry, who's watching live, says that Marion is a legend, and I agree. And who's going to fill your shoes? Who else is as passionate about this subject as you are that's doing the kind of work that you've done? I think there are lots of people who are doing it. I get books in my in my mailbox every day from people who are writing fantastic books about this. I tend to know the old people because they're in my generation. So I know Francis Moore Lappe. I know Michael Jacobson. Uh, I know Anna Lappe, who's, Franz, who's Frankie's daughter. Um, but there are lots and lots of young people coming up who are doing amazing work. Um, and it's one of the really exciting things that I've seen is the enormous growth in interest in trying to have a food supply that promotes health and protects the environment. And, and I'm just so gratified that so many people are interested in this. Yeah. Why do you think that nutritional advice is always changing? Because you've often said we know what we're supposed to eat and that really hasn't changed. Well, I actually don't think it's changed. If you read between the lines, it can be summarized in Michael Pollan's, he's a fantastic writer, um, Michael Pollan's seven words, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Um, I mean, that really takes care of it. By food, he means foods that are real and not ultra processed. Not too much is pretty obvious and mostly plants is mostly, but not totally necessarily plants, but mostly. So eat your veggies um, and don't eat too much processed foods. And that really takes care of it. And if you read between the lines and dietary guidelines, that's actually what they say, um, boiled down to seven words. But the fuss is about when you talk about nutrients, carbohydrates versus fats and this vitamin or that mineral, the minute you start teasing nutrition apart, it suddenly gets very complicated. Well, even today, you know, many doctors are promoting certain foods or, or certain nutrients. And, you know, I think about it, uh, before I became a chef 20 years ago, I was an activity director at a retirement home, not a nursing home, but a high-end home where just they lived there, not because they were sick, just that's what sometimes people do as they get older. And there were people there that were thriving in their 80s, 90s, and 100s not using walkers or hearing aids, and they weren't making sure to get a serving of kale or blueberries or take a tablespoon <laughs> of fish oil or omega-3 fatty acids. But today it's like th these, these things that people believe are going to contribute to their health and longevity. It, what, what do you think about that? This is reductionist. Yeah, I, you know, that's nutritionism, where you focus on one particular nutrient, and that stands for health. You know, I, it's, I think it's very hard for some people to follow that kind of dietary advice, eat a lot of plants, don't eat too much, don't eat too much junk food. For one thing, junk food is cheap. And and fruits and vegetables are not. And that's government policy. Government policy subsidizes the basic ingredients of processed foods. 
uh, people, the makers can buy the ingredients when they're cheap and they last on shelves forever and they're heavily, heavily advertised. So people who don't have a lot of money are going to buy those kinds of foods. Quite understandably, when you go to a store and look at um, you know, $3 for a head of lettuce. I was just at a store this afternoon. It's the end of summer. It's not the lettuce season anymore. And lettuce is $3 a head in my local grocery store. So if you're not rich, you're not going to be buying that because that seems like a ridiculous amount of money to spend on one head of lettuce. So I totally understand that. I think we need government policy that makes the cost of healthy foods cheaper than the cost of junk foods. Uh, wouldn't that be nice? Well, that makes sense, but it seems that the food industry fights any attempt at any type of government regulation. Absolutely, because they are not social service agencies. They're not public health agencies. They're businesses with stockholders to please. Um, you know, I keep saying that over and over again. Once you understand that, then you're talking about how do you deal with a corporate culture that is aimed that way. And you think, well, you've got to change the way Wall Street evaluates corporations. A couple of, um, there were a couple of signs of that last year. The World Economic Forum and something called the Business Roundtable, uh, which represents 200 corporations, came out with statements that it was time that corporations started paying more attention to social values. Um, and they made fantastic statements about it, uh, how important it was for corporations to promote societal cohesiveness and other kinds of values. But then the coronavirus hit and we saw what happened in meatpacking plants. Um, you want to see corporations that don't care about their workers at all? Just look at what happened in meatpacking plants where the corporations went to the president and got the president to invoke the Meat Production Act to force uh, low income workers, many of them people of color, to keep working even though they were getting sick, working under crowded and dangerous conditions. And there've been at least 55 or 60,000 um, meat packing and farm workers who've gotten sick and, um, you know, there have been more than 200 deaths. And these are just ones that have been confirmed. Um, so I want to see corporations put their money where their mouth is. If they're going to make statements about promoting health and promoting the welfare of their workers and promoting environmental sustainability, I want to see them do something about that. Yeah, this is, it's not right. But you know, I understand what you say is that the, the junk, whatever you want to call it, we're not allowed to call it junk food, the ultra processed food or the non-food is cheaper, but there, and maybe vegetables can be expensive, but there are things that are healthy like beans and rice when purchased in bulk that really aren't that costly. And I, you know, I work with people that are, that are wealthy. They come to me for weight loss and they could afford the vegetables, but there's something about this, this, it's such an addictive pull with some of these foods that they're still eating them, not because they're cheap, because they're addictive. Well, they're, they're, they're designed to be absolutely delicious, crunchy, just what you want to be eating. Um, and the, you know, I, I don't know about the addiction part about it, but I do think that it's important to understand that this is business. This is about business. And if people want to eat healthfully, it really helps to know how to cook. Lots of people don't know how to cook. I learned how to cook in school. 
I took home economics when I was in the seventh grade. That's what girls did in those days. Um, and it was actually very valuable. I mean, I learned basic cooking techniques, not chef techniques, but basic cooking techniques. And I left that class and I could deal with whatever. Um, I knew something about taste. I knew something about how food worked and I knew how to make great cookies, <laughs> you know, which, which was how they sold us on this. Um, and I think teaching kids how to cook is a really fabulous thing to do. Teaching kids how to garden is a fabulous thing to do. And I'm really glad to see that lots of people are doing that now. I remember home economics when I was in seventh grade. So I was 11 years old and it was like, you're right. I, a lot of the things I know, I learned the basics there, but then, the, then they, they got rid of the classes like that. And even physical education, a couple of years later, they were just gone from the curriculum. Yep. Um, yeah. Testing has taken its place. Um, you know, and I think we need to bring that back and we need to bring back home economics for um, every sex. Yeah, <laughs> not just girls. Absolutely. Girls. Uh, I really wanted to take shop, but I wasn't allowed. To. Same here. They wouldn't let us take wood shop, metal shop. Um, I wasn't even allowed. I, I was in band, but I had I was only I could only play the flute or the clarinet. And I wanted to play the drums and the trumpet or the sax. It wasn't allowed. They had yeah. girls' instruments and boys' instruments? <laughs> Apparently they did in 1971. Oh, so I got stuck playing the clarinet and I, I didn't like it at all. And then finally, a couple of years later, they changed it and I got to learn the trumpet. So yeah, I would have, yeah, that's neat. So a lot of people watching live have questions such as, how do you feel about glyphosate? Mexico apparently has banned it or things like GMOs. Um, well, I wrote a book about it. It's called Safe Food, the Politics of Food Safety. Uh, and I don't think things have changed very much. I have a complicated position on GMOs. I don't think they're poison. I think you can eat genetically modified crops and they're not going to hurt you. But the corporate aspects of it are really disturbing in many, many ways. It's monoculture, it's corporate control of the food supply, um, and it requires enormous inputs of questionable chemicals, of which glyphosate is only the most obvious example. Glyphosate has two problems. For one thing, it induces weed resistance, and that means that the companies stop using it and use other kinds of pesticides. And for another, and probably more important, it's been uh, quite strongly associated with um, causing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And there have now been several court cases that have given quite large judgments to people who claim that they got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma from dealing with glyphosate. And there's something like 30 or 40,000 cases that uh, of this, that uh, the company that owns glyphosate, Bayer, which bought it from Monsanto, is having to deal with. And Bayer has just um, announced a $12 billion settlement of those cases, but there are big questions about whether it's really going to deliver on that. Um, so I think glyphosate is probably something you better avoid. Yeah. And that means, that means avoiding the, and don't use it as a weed killer either. Because so uh, lots of people just buy it at the, grow, at the, the hardware store and use it to kill their weeds. It's better to pull up. Yeah. Absolutely. What about GMOs? Well, I just said uh, that Same. in general, you know, that in general, I would think they're safety, but I don't like the idea. You don't. Very 
Okay, because of the, you know, there's only one that I know of that has really produced a benefit. And there are arguments about that too. And that's the genetically modified papaya in Hawaii that um, was resistant to, it made the papayas resistant to ring spot virus that were ruining the Hawaiian uh, papaya crop. And so then they've introduced this one and it seems to be doing better. Um, but there's still arguments about that as well. I don't think that GMOs are poison. I just don't like the whole idea, not because of um, the safety so much as because of the way these things are used and the corporatization of the food supply, which I think is really unfortunate. Did you ever have any health or weight problems? And do you feel that obesity is just a matter of personal choice? Um, I've not, I don't have a weight problem and lucky me. It's interesting. My father died of a heart attack at the age of 47 and he was a 350 pound, um, not a very tall man. Uh, he weighed 350 pounds, was a three pack a day smoker. So he had multiple risk factors for coronary artery disease and died young of it. And sometimes I think that may be my interest in all of this, but I did not inherit his genes. Uh, but I think that to say that obesity is a matter of personal responsibility is very complicated because we don't live in a food vacuum. We live in a food environment um, that is set up to get us to eat as much food as we possibly can because food companies are spending billions and billions and billions of dollars a year marketing food to us. That's their job. And they do it really, really well. And so in that 1980 turning point, um, what happened after that, when food companies had to be so much more competitive, they made larger portions of all those ultra processed foods. Um, you can't eat just one, you eat a bigger bag. If I had one nutritional concept to get across to the American public, it would be this, larger portions have more calories. I can't even say it with a straight face, um, but it's not intuitively obvious. People think if it comes in a container, it's 100 calories. And it's not. If it can, comes in a big container, it's a lot more than 100 calories. And I know that it's not intuitively obvious because um, we asked a class at NYU, how many calories are there in an eight ounce soft drink? And how many calories are there in a 64 ounce soft drink? And we thought even NYU freshmen should be able to multiply by eight. Um, but the, the multiplier that they came back was, with was three. The average answer was 300 calories. So I said to the instructor, you've got to go back and ask the class what's going on. They really, they can do the math. Uh, and she did. And they said, it's impossible for a soft drink to have 800 calories. We just, it's just impossible. It, it couldn't be true. And so they just didn't believe it. And so it's not intuitively obvious. So the first thing that you do if you're trying to lose weight is you stop drinking soft drinks because they've got calories and no nutritional value um, and the sugars aren't so great either. Um, and the second is you try to eat smaller portions, really. It's the best way I know. So the food industry really doesn't want to take any any responsibility in contributing to the obesity epidemic. Is that correct? 
Well, that that would be their preference. But, <laughs> but in fact, what they have had to respond, and they have responded by making lower calorie products, products that look like their health foods, whether they are or not, um, and giving you lots and lots of choices. So they can argue, well, we've given you a choice. It's just that they put most of their advertising dollars in the most um, profitable products. And the most profitable products happen to be the ultra-processed ones that are the least good for you, if that's a reasonable way to put it. So the worse it is for you, the better it sells. Yeah, apparently. You're probably familiar with Michael Moss's book, Salt, Sugar, and Fat. Definitely. Right. I, I, I believe it was in his book that I, where he was interviewing people that work for these companies, those that were willing to talk to him and still alive. And apparently the person who invented Lunchables wouldn't even allow his family to eat them. So I'm wondering if anybody in the processed food industry feels even slightly bad about what they're doing. I understand they have profits and shareholders, but do any of them kind of really feel a little bad or guilty about what they're doing? I think they do, but they sign non-disclosure agreements when they leave the companies with the exception of the people that Michael Moss got to talk to him. Um, and I've talked to people. I mean, I mean, we have a lot of students at NYU who are in, in our food studies program who are thinking of going into uh, working for food companies. And I encourage them to do that. I think it's a huge learning opportunity. And many of them want to go into food companies because they want to change the companies from within. That's their goal. Uh, they rarely succeed. They can't succeed. And they can't succeed because the purpose of a food company is to make money. Um, they're not social service agencies. They're really not interested in social values unless the exercise of those social values can be profitable in some way. And it, they're often not. So if the most profitable foods are the ones that are worse for people, they can't give them up and they can't stop marketing. I, I once went to, when Michelle Obama was in the White House, uh, she had a meeting on marketing to children that I was invited to. And it was a very interesting meeting and they divided the group up after the speeches. And uh, the group that I was in had a lot of food company representatives in it. And they said flat out, we would love to stop marketing to children. We think it's wrong in answer to your question. They knew it was wrong. It's wrong. We would love to stop, but we have shareholders to please. That's their first priority. And so marketing to children is their line in the sand. They're not going to stop because they can't. They, so what that tells me is we need government regulation. If we had government regulation that told food companies, no, you cannot market to children, no food companies could market to children. It's across the board, spelled out, everybody on the same playing field. I think it would be a great relief to all of those people who still have a conscience. You can let, please let us know how we can do that. That would be amazing. It's too bad that we can't find a way to make health profitable because it seems to be there's so many parallels between the processed food industry and the pharmaceutical industry. So to, to, to have somebody have a lifestyle medicine appointment where the doctor is telling them to eat more fruits and vegetables, that's not going to be supplemented by insurance, but their open heart surgery will. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, we have a system that is totally not set up to promote health and to promote environmental sustainability. And we need to change all that. And I think more and more people are recognizing that. So watching live, Kevin says, how political is the food pyramid? Who gets to decide which foods and which percentages fit the food pyramid? Well, we don't have a food pyramid anymore. We haven't had a food pyramid since 2010 when the um, My Plate Food Guide came in. Um, I actually liked the food pyramid. I thought it was okay. Um, it was very well researched and it was the food guide that uh, showed that meat, dairy products and junk foods were at the top and fruits and vegetables and grains were at the bottom. I thought the only thing that should have changed was that fruits and vegetables should have been at the bottom and grains should have been a little bit above that and the grains should have been pushed as whole grains, but, the, but it was really okay. Uh, but there's an enormous amount of political activity that goes behind food guides. Um, every food company is concerned. Food guides are based on the dietary guidelines for Americans. And where you see the politics is in the dietary guidelines. Uh, in one, for one reason, because the process of producing them, and we're in that process right now, uh, is completely transparent. Everything is online. You can go on the dietary guidelines website and you can I can't imagine anybody actually doing this, but you can watch the boring meetings. You can read all the boring documents. Uh, you can see everything that they're doing and everything that they're taking into consideration. You can read the reports they write. You can read every single document that is filed as a comment. And there are tens of thousands of such things, but it's a completely transparent process. The turning of all of that into the actual guidelines is a secret process. Um, and it gets taken away from the scientists and the representatives of the USDA and the Health and Human Services write the guidelines. They're doing that right now. I have no idea what they're doing. Just want to read a nice comment from Gina, who's watching live. Please tell Marion that we love her and thank her so much for everything she's done. She was one of the first people who opened my eyes. Oh, isn't that nice? Thank you. Yeah. You've made my day. <laughs> so how much money does the food industry spend on marketing and why is it so successful? Well, they're very good at it. You know, they hire people to do psychological uh, investigations of what people like, and they, they really know how to do that. And, th and they've known how to do that since the hidden persuaders of 50 years ago, um, you know, when all of this stuff was made public. The, um, uh, the amount of money that is spent on marketing is um, roughly in the United States alone, probably... Uh, marketing food. It's very, very hard to say because I don't know anybody who tracks it, but it's in the range of 30 to $50 billion a year. Um, advertising Age, which is a trade publication for the advertising agency, occasionally has lists of specific advertising budgets for specific products. 
um, and you can sometimes find those. And you'll see that the advertising budget for a product like Pop-Tarts is about $30 million a year. That's a number that's easier to understand. Um, and that's only for the amount of money that's spent on advertising agencies. It's not on all of the other ways in which companies advertise products, but are really, you know, McDonald's spends a billion dollars a year. Um, Coca-Cola spends three or four hundred million dollars uh, just on classic Coke. So they have budgets like that for almost every product. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's hundreds of millions of dollars. And that money is spent on um, such things as advertising campaigns that involve celebrities, that involve sports figures, music figures, many of them aimed directly at uh, minority groups, Blacks and Hispanics. Um, they're really good at marketing to low-income people. Um, and all of the marketing is heavily researched. They know exactly what they're doing. They know what kind of psychological buttons to push. And they know how to do it in a way that's so entertaining that you don't even know you're being sold to. I talked to uh, somebody who asked me a question um, last week about you know, what, what he thought, I don't know, he asked me what I thought was really important about that, that individuals could do. And, and I said, well, one thing is you teach your kids media literacy. And he said, oh, I'm already doing that. Every time a commercial comes on TV, I ask my kids, what are they trying to sell you? And he said, you know, it's not always obvious. And it forces the kids to really pay close attention and to have in their minds, what are they trying to sell me? That's teaching media literacy to kids. I think it's a fantastic thing to do and not very hard. It means you have to watch TV with your kids, but that's probably not a bad idea anyway. Right. Well, the people that sell fruits and vegetables don't have anywhere near those kind of budgets. No, not nowhere near those kinds of budgets. And that's because fruits and vegetables are, um, uh, you know, I mean, meat is meat and Coca-Cola is Coca-Cola. But fruits and vegetables are very varied and often look at each other as competitors. And they don't do a lot of joint advertising for fruits and vegetables. In general, they don't find that generic advertising of fr fruits and vegetables does them any good. Um, in the same way. And that's why all of these different fruits and vegetable trade associations are funding research. So the, to try to prove that blueberries are a superfood or pomegranates are a superfood um, or pecans are going to prevent heart disease or you know these kinds of things, all of this industry-funded research, which comes out with results that favor the sponsor's interest, are to try to get you to eat one fruit or vegetable rather than another. Uh, whereas the healthiest diets can contain a big combination of lots of different kinds. I've heard you talk about that, that the food industry meddles in science. And if they're looking for an outcome, they'll hire the exact researcher to find that so that you will eat, you know, an ounce of almonds every day for whatever reason, because that's. There are research companies that that's what they do is they do uh, studies for food companies. I think that those kinds of studies are marketing research and they should be published in the Journal of Marketing Research or something like that, uh, or the Journal of Industry Funded Research, as a friend of mine suggested. Uh, 
because the results almost always come out exactly the way the sponsor wants them to. And rarely do the results come out any different. So there's a lot of corruption in the system that's really unfortunate. And of course, that ends up confusing the public. And that's too bad. I'm in favor of eating blueberries and pomegranates and all those things. Um, but you shouldn't expect miracles from one of them. Well, people have this concept of superfoods now. And like, you know, like you say, nuts, omega-3 fatty acids, these things that, like I said, the, the people that I knew in the retirement home, they weren't worried about those. They were just actually eating food. All right. I eat food. Not too much. Mostly plants. <laughs> <laughs> but if you wanted to eat exclusively plants, it would probably be okay. If I wanted to eat, which I'm sorry. It, not it, well, I mean, if a person like me wanted to only eat plants, that would be okay too. That's okay too. Sure. Thank you. So what effect does the, the, what the food industry does have on the environment? Because that's what everybody's worried about now is global warming. Well, and the, our food system affects the environment in several different ways. For one thing, ag agricultural production has an enormous effect on greenhouse gas emissions because of all the inputs that get put in and the way that it's grown. Meat production is probably the biggest item in the food supply that contributes to greenhouse gases for two reasons. One is all the food that has to be grown for them. And the other is they burp <laughs> and they burp methane. And methane is a greenhouse gas that's worse than carbon dioxide. Um, and then, you know, all of the ways in which uh, the agricultural chemicals get into the water supplies and ruin the water supplies so that the Gulf of Mexico, half of the Gulf of Mexico, uh, fish die if they get into it because there's so much algal growth that fish can't live in it. Um, and then, of course, climate change is affecting agriculture in that the global warming has had a big impact on where crops can grown and can be grown and on pest control. Um, and the part that alarms me the most is there's now very, very good scientific evidence that higher carbon dioxide concentrations reduce the level of nutrients in plant crops, just what we don't need. Um, so we have you know, big climate problems. And the one thing that makes this a little easier is that the same diet that's best for health is also best for the planet. So the eat food, not too much, mostly plant diet is, uh, that turns out to be the one that's most environmentally friendly also. So you only have to do one thing and that's eat your veggies. That's what I've been saying. And that's, that's, right. what, <laughs> that's what all my, all my work has really been about because what's good for your health is good for the animals because you're either not eating them or eating far fewer of them and it's good for the planet. It should be a no brainer, but it's not. How can we fix this mess? Well, I think we have to organize and begin and become advocates and activists. We have to take action. And everybody is always asking me, how do you do that? Um, and I write books, I teach, I give lectures. I do this kind of thing. That's what I do. That's what I'm most comfortable doing. Other people are more comfortable doing other kinds of things. Um, I think you have to use the political system um, in the way that everybody else does. And that means, oh, I just wish people who are interested in these questions would run for office. Mm. Well, you want you want political power? Run for office, um, and you can do it on a local level. Join a school board. Go to your kid's school and make sure that the food that they're serving in the school is as healthy as it can be. 
um, get your local community to promote local agriculture, to make sure you have a farmer's market, uh, to make the fresh fruits and vegetables available to as many people as possible. Um, make food choices that um, are consistent with your values. You know, choose a largely plant-based diet. Choose a completely plant-based diet if you want to. Um, I mean, I think that's great. So that's voting with your fork. Yeah. You know, you make personal choices that are in the direction of what you believe in. And I think those personal choices are very important. Um, I, I know a lot of people think that what one person does doesn't make any difference, but I think it has ripple effects. If you make these kinds of choices, your friends are gonna make these kinds of choices. People are gonna see you doing this. It's gonna make it easier for them to do it. Uh, so there's a ripple effect that, that, I, that I think is really very, very important. At the same time, I think, you know, if you can, you've got to vote with your vote. And this year, everybody needs to vote. Um, this is, a, you know, just, you don't like either candidate, hold your nose and vote because a vote really matters. And it's gonna matter this year, I think more than it has in many, many, many years. Um, and then maybe we'll get a government that's interested in the kinds of issues that we're interested in. Maybe we'll be lucky enough to have legislators, to elect legislators who are willing to uh, stand up to corporations and do things for the public. And the only word we're going to get that is by voting for people who uh, share our values or share most of our values. Nobody's gonna be perfect. It just the world just doesn't work that way. Uh, but at least some of your values, most of your values, um, you know, it would be really nice if we had legislators who were willing to do that. We have some legislators who are very interested in these kinds of issues, but they're in a great minority. They need friends. Well, it sounds like you would be the perfect person and everyone watching is asking you if you would please consider running for office. <laughs> oh dear, I'm way too old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I, think, I think you look great. I understand what you're saying. They have shareholders to answer to, but why they're allowed to serve this crap in schools, that does not seem like it, oh. fair or right that they can well, do that in schools. Yeah, that's nutritionism in action. And it's also politics in action. I mean, you want to understand food politics, just look at what goes on in schools. Uh, when Michelle Obama was uh, doing her Let's Move campaign, she picked on schools as sort of the issue that she was going to work on during her time in office. And it's interesting to read her book, Becoming, which I think is a fabulous book. Um, in which she talks about how apolitical she is. She's really not interested in politics. She doesn't like politics. And she picked school food. And I've always wondered, did she pick school food because she thought it was gonna be a bipartisan issue that everybody would get behind? Who could possibly not want kids to eat healthfully? I mean, or did she know what a political landmine she was walking into? Because it was a political landmine and the Republicans used it to oppose her. And so all of a sudden, all of the things that she was trying to do in school, which is just to have kids have healthier food in school, um, she was accused of being nanny state. She was accused of being all kinds of things. And a, quite a bit of what she did was rolled back. Even so, school lunches are much better than they used to be. I go to a lot of schools 
and look at the lunch program. And I'm struck that the single most important factor in, in the healthful quality of school meals is who's in the school making them. Um, if you have people in the school who think that feeding kids is God's work, is the most important thing in the world that you can do, the food is gonna be good and the kids are going to be eating it. And there are two skills involved. There's making food that's edible and there is getting the kids to eat it. And you need both of those schools and you need both of those skills. And in the schools where both of those skills um, are present, and I have been in schools in the poorest neighborhoods in New York and seen school meals that are just absolutely delicious. Um, smell good, the staff is fabulous, they know the names of the kids. Um, and that's because the people in the school care. They care really a lot. Um, yes, the government is doing everything that it can to make all of this difficult. Um, I was fascinated to see that the Department of Agriculture was opposing extending. You know, one of the things the coronavirus thing showed up is that kids aren't just going to school because to learn, they get fed in school. And they have uh, agreed to allow universal school meals to go until free school meals for everybody to go until the end of December. I hope it lasts forever. Do you know Amy Hamlin from New York, the Coalition for Healthy School Food? Yeah, I met her. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, she's she's gonna she's gonna be a, a guest this year. You know, there's a doctor who I'm very fond of that's been on the show many times, Dr. John McDougall, and he has a saying: people are always looking for good news about their bad habits. And it seems like these researchers are always looking if they have a product that's not necessarily helpful, they're always looking for the spin. So, like you you told you talked about Mars chocolate, for example, that chocolate is chocolate, but it's not really a health food, but they no. make it appear as such. It were. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they did, Mars did a lot of research to try to prove that one of the ingredients in cocoa um, is, a, is a very helpful ingredient, and it is, but by the time you make chocolate, that ingredient is pretty much gone. Now they're selling it in pills. Yeah. How can we support your work, other than buying your book, which I've been posting the link like crazy this whole interview. Oh, that's nice. Um, well, I write a daily blog at foodpolitics.com, um, which you're welcome to read and reprint and steal from and do with uh, as you like. It's totally open source. Anything you want to use on that, um, you can do. I try to post the documents there. Uh, and the references. So for me, it's a file cabinet, so I can find things pretty easily, but you're, everybody is welcome to use that. Um, I have a Twitter feed at Marion at, at Marian Nessel. Um, I don't know, follow me on Twitter. Yeah. Is that where you're most active? Is that your, your, your preferred oh, platform? I know I mostly do the blog. The blog goes out automatically on Twitter. I try to check Twitter once a day, but I don't always get there. Um, it's it's hard. I guess. So, I you, you, that's the only social media I'm using. You've been so vocal about these issues for so long. Isn't anybody in the industry trying to come and get you to silence you? Well, um, I, I can't tell whether they think I'm useless or whether they want to co-opt me, but they come and visit me in my office. I meet with heads of food companies pretty regularly. They're all very, very nice people. They really are. Um, they mean well, or they think they mean well. Um, I've only been threatened with, loss, with lawsuits twice, and neither time did anybody do anything about it. 
um, and they were both quite a long time ago. Um, the first one was when food politics came out and the sugar industry threatened a lawsuit because I had said that soft drinks contain nothing but sugar and water and nothing else. And they said, you of all people should know that soft drinks don't contain sugar. They contain high fructose corn syrup. I, I thought that was hysterically funny, but other people were less amused and I had to write a rebuttal. So I have all that on my website. I think I put those under media way at the bottom. Nice. Well, you know, sugar gets blamed for everything, but like you say, it's, it's excess. It's not that the people are eating too much fat or too much carbs. People are just eating too much food. Yeah, it's nice if you don't eat too much. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> well, but you can eat a lot of vegetables. That's for sure. You certainly can. Unfortunately, most children don't eat them. And I, I believe pizza or at least ketchup now is considered a vegetable. Oh, once again. Yeah. I mean, they, when, when the Department of Agriculture parses out ingredients, the tomatoes that are in vegetables get to do that. And the uh, pizza industry got the school lunch rolled back to allow the amount of tomato sauce that's on pizza to be considered a vegetable serving. Um, I mean, that was one of the outrageous things that happened. They go right to Congress and Congress does this. So if you want a food system that functions, you've got to fix Congress. That's really where the problem lies. Okay, well, Marion Nessel for, I don't know, Surgeon General, what, what, what post would you like? I'd like to be the Tsarina of food. <laughs> well, you you already are, and we do really. It's just been such an honor and a pleasure talking to you. You're just you're 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 just a firecracker, and I hope you don't ever intend on slowing down. Keep writing books. And today we have her newest book. Let's ask Marion. It's on Amazon. It's the number one new release in health <laughs> policy right now. So let's make it just number one everywhere. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for the interview. This was fun. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.